A warm welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I'm the CEO and founder of Leaders Plus, an award-winning social enterprise dedicated to supporting leaders with babies and young children. I passionately believe that it is not okay that in the UK today, if you have a child and want to care for it, it significantly impacts on your chances of getting to the most senior jobs. With this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme, I want to change this by giving you inspiration and practical support so you can continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children. Today's guest is Jennifer Petrilieri. She is an Associate Professor of Organisational Behaviour at INSEED in France and author of the book Couples That Work. We know that instinctively your relationship, if you have one, has a massive impact on your career progress. But she has gone beyond instinct. She has done groundbreaking research about how couples in ambitious career can thrive and what concrete steps you can take this week in order to help your relationship make positive impact on your career and vice versa. I really hope you enjoy today's conversation. Oh, and also, for those of you who are planning to apply to the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program, don't forget that the application closed this week week the podcast is going out on 13th of February. A very warm welcome Jennifer and thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you it's great to be with you. I am a fan of your book and I'm very curious first of all why did you write it? Yeah okay it was a journey that got me here. So I think like all of your listeners and like most of us in the world, you know, I myself am in a working couple and sort of struggling how to make it work. And as an academic, you know, I was really interested in looking at, well, there must be some research out there, right, that can help us. And when I looked at this, I actually found nothing. So I found some research uh, that was at a very practical level, you know, how do we split the household chores but this isn't really the big issue most couples are struggling with. And, um, and so I thought, well, you know, if no one's done that research, I'm going to do that. And so it was a six-year process, and so eventually the book came out. But I really wanted to ground this in some rigorous scientific research, not just the story of this is what I did and this is what worked for me. I think that's very interesting, and, and I guess that's probably why I'm drawn to your work. For those of us like me who are geeks, can you tell us a bit more about how you approached the research, what what you did? Yeah, so I love geeks <laughs> I'm, and I'm a geek too. And the research process is, is really interesting. So what I tried to do was find a sample of couples that's not a random sample that maximizes for diversity. So I was looking for couples right across the career span from couples who were early in their career to those who were clear, close to retirement. I was also looking for couples, you know, across the age span, different nationalities, different industries. So public sector, private sector, you know, some government, some entrepreneurs, etc. And I think when I started out, the reason I was after that diversity was to really see, you know, what are the different challenges given our life structures? And what I found was that although the, the things that we struggle with are different, the underlying causes are very often similar across couples. And, um, and when I first found that, you know, it was quite surprising. But as I dug into it more and more, I found that there was really quite a universal pattern across 
couples that related to their life stage and career stage. And in particular, three points in their life and career stage, which in the book I call three transitions, where it's really a struggle for working couples. And what I found in the research was that if working couples could work through these transitions well, they could really build a renewed relationship and get themselves on a great kind of renewed career path. However, many couples didn't work through these well. And so the research is really trying to pick apart what's happening in these particular pain points psychologically and practically and what we can do to with that understanding to make it easier for us. And one of those transition points is often when people have children and, and you're putting it beautifully in, in that the idea that you you have to join up your lives in a way that much more intensive than than before. Yeah. You, yeah. I'm interested in your personal story as well. Is it what was that shift um like for you when you had children and you're obviously still very ambitious? Yeah, I think very similar to probably most of your listeners. In that when I look back now to our lives pre-children, you know, we'd gotten married and one level we had very intertwined lives, but really we were still living parallel lives. So we had, we were pushing our own careers forward. We had our hobbies, we had our friends, we had our families, and we'd laid on top this wonderful relationship. And we'd not really had to face any hard choices until that point. We can support each other. We can both do what we want. And then suddenly two children arrived for us in the space of 16 months. So we went the factory farming route, if I could put it that way. And of course, like any new parent finds, you know, that parallel lives is no longer possible. You know, every single decision is suddenly intertwined and has consequences on each other. And it's a huge shock. You know, we read all the parenting books and, and we learn about changing nappies and, you know, how much they should sleep and things. But no one ever really tells us what the profound impact it have, has on our lives. And of course, part of that impact is wonderful. You know, the joy and the love and all this. And part of it is a real shock to wrestle with, which is, okay, we no longer have these independent lives and how are we going to make it work? I.e., how are we going to structure our lives in a way that we can both live out our ambition and be the kind of parents we want to be and have a relationship? And, you know, initially it was tough for us as it is for all, you know, a lot of couples I spoke to and we struggled. And I think part of the reason we were struggling, and this is what I found a lot in my research, the reason couples struggle here is that we focus on the wrong thing. We look at this as a logistical challenge. So we think about childcare, we think about pickups and drop-offs, we think about how much time we can dedicate to work. But that's not really what's happening psychologically here. What's happening psychologically is, you know, how do we intertwine our lives? How do we become interdependent? How do we balance our careers against each other? How do we talk about what we want and make sure we support each other? And it took us a while to really understand that that was the challenge. And the challenge was not, you know, who's putting the washing machine on today. 
it still helps when my husband does that, but that's not going to save us, right? And this is what I found in many couples. We get distracted by the day-to-day logistical issues, but that's not really the things we're having conflict about. And they're not really the things that's going to make our, our lives thrive in the long term. Is there a magic formula? Have you found something that makes people who are ambitious in their careers, but also want to be happy with their partners, makes those people happy? Is there, is there a magic formula? Yes and no. I mean, no, I, I think I went into the research thinking, you know, there's got to be an arrangement that makes it work as in a solution. And if we all do this, we'll live happily ever after. That's not out there. But I did find a kind of secret source. And I found that couples who, who did this, of course, they still face challenges, right? There's nothing that immunizes us from life. But they were able to move through those challenges and they felt satisfied with their careers and with their relationship. And what this secret source was, was not a decision per se, but a way of making those decisions. It almost didn't matter what couples chose, right? There were some couples with two really big stressful careers, others where one had prioritized their career and the other was still had a career, but maybe was going at a slower pace. There were come some couples who were very stable and embedded in their family networks. There were others who moved around a lot. All of these things could work and all could be a real disaster. And what made the difference was not the thing we chose. It was the way we went about and got to that choice. And the couples who thrived over the long term, and again, of course, they still face challenges occasionally, were couples who were very deliberate in that decision-making process. And again, they were deliberate, not just at that practical level. How do we divide up the housework? How do we, um, you know, how do we divide the childcare? They were very deliberate at a more psychological level underneath. And they were really deliberate about thinking through, okay, what really matters to us? What are our values? What do we want? And being very clear about that and then making decisions based on that as a decision criteria. So let me give you some examples to make it more concrete. Part of what most of us want are some career goals. Now, when I say career goals, I'm not talking about a career plan, which is, you know, in two years time, I'm going to get the next promotion and then I'm going to change organizations. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about values around our career. So is your... It does a good career for you look like continual promotion and climbing up a hierarchy? The answer is yes for some people, but for other people, it's something else. It might be about growth. It might be about developing new skills and talents. It might be about working in an organization where there's a real strong sense of community. Some people have a very specific career goal. So I really wanted, always wanted to write a book. Here I am. I did it. <laughs> um, You know, so it's not a career plan, but it's a sense of, you know, what will make a good career for me? Other things that matter to us are around our relationship and our family. You know, what does a good relationship look like for us? If we get in five years time and we're doing this or with this kind of couple, this is good. So let's think of our family, right? Maybe we want to be a really adventurous family who travel a lot and see the world and expose our children to all these new insights. And we're more of a nuclear family. That's really important for some people. Other people would say, that looks good, but what's really important to us is being very embedded in our community and that our children grow up with their cousins nearby and, and, and sort of all of this. 
And then there may be personal goals and ambitions. You know, some of us have sports we're very keen about or um, myself, I'm really into music. I love to play the piano. And, you know, we have certain things that really matter to us. And if we don't have time for those, then we start to feel we're not living the best life. And the couples who do well are couples who are really explicit about this and then make decisions based on that rather than simply opportunities that pop up. I think it's fascinating to hear you say this. So I think I mentioned to you as part of the fellowship program that we run for leaders with babies and young children, we have a session uh, on a Saturday where we bring together couples and just ask them some really simple questions similar to what you've just described. What's your vision and what are your joint values? What are your individual values? Where do you see your career and family life go? And what is fascinating is that one, as you say, that, you know, having that conversation on that day is transformative, but also actually many of us don't have those conversations. And you found that in your research, it's essential to have those conversations. So have you seen couples who do it particularly well? How do they make time in the busyness of it all to have those it's conversations? A great question. And I think particularly when we have small children, time is very, very precious. And there's always a thousand things to do on that to-do list. I think the first important thing to say is it does not take a whole weekend. You know, it's lovely to think about, I don't know, going to a mountain chalet in front of a log fire and having these conversations. That's lovely, but it doesn't take it. All it takes is 20 minutes with a cup of tea on the sofa when the kids are tucked up in bed. And I think that's really important to point out because sometimes we can make these conversations into a huge deal that we need to have completely planned out and we need to know what we're going to say and there needs to be a structure. No, this is having some dedicated time where we put our phones, our devices away, you know, 15, 20 minutes with a nice cup of tea, a nice glass of wine where we're dedicating 100% attention to each other and just saying, you know, hello <laughs> to each other in a calm way. You know, what matters to you? How, how are things going? What can we do to make things better? How can we better support each other? And so I think couples who do this well do two things. One is they do that. They don't make these conversations into a big deal because when we do, then we start imagining all this time we need. And second is they build them into the fabric of their relationship. So let me give you a couple of examples. There was one couple I spoke to, a slightly older couple, but they've been doing this for 20 years. And she said, well, you know, every Saturday morning we have a boulangerie meeting. And I said, okay. And they go down to their local bakery for 45 minutes, that's it. And she said, we always sit in the same table and we always get the same cup of coffee and croissant. And we sit there and this is our little ritual on a Saturday morning where we sit there and we know phones and we just talk. We talk about the week, how are we feeling? You know, what are the things that are coming up? We talk about careers, we talk about life. And so it's a little ritual that's in their week, 45 minutes a week, you know, who can't afford that? Other couples don't do it so regularly. It might be every couple of months, but we'll take time just to sit down maybe over a dinner out, maybe one night after the kids are in bed. But it's this idea of making it a habit. So it doesn't become such a big emotional thing to tackle. Likewise, many couples do this on their anniversary. So I know my husband and I always talk about this sort of in the new year 
and because we're both academics, of course, at the beginning of the school year, right, in, in September. So these are the two points where we just know we're going to talk about this stuff. Now, we very often talk about it in between as well. But these are just two natural transition points in the year where we revisit these conversations. For some people, it might be, you know, birthdays or other important points. But it's about developing a habit of knowing these conversations are coming up and they just become normal in your couple. But it doesn't require a special retreat or um, a fancy dinner or anything like that. Yeah, I can really resonate with that. I read some research recently about creating new habits. And the idea was that you link whatever new habit you want to create to an existing habit, like that breakfast, you're going to eat breakfast on a Saturday morning anyways. So making a habit for 10 minutes to put away your phones and just talk is very powerful. My partner and I tend to have these conversations while we're going for walks, while the kids sleep. So our three and a half year old still sometimes sleeps when she's exhausted. So we take two prams with toddler and preschooler and we go for long walks. And it's so it's really transformative to have those conversations. And and the other a couple of weeks ago, I injured myself and we couldn't do that for a few weeks. And it, it had just such an impact. And I think sometimes we don't even notice how important they converse, those conversations yeah. are. Another good time is car ride, car journeys, long car journeys are great for this when the kids fall asleep in the back. But I think this is it because the idea of a car journey, a walk, something like this is the undivided attention. And I think when I talk to couples these days and say, you know, when was the last time you had just 10 minutes, 10 minutes with absolutely no distractions, no phone, no kids, no TV, no nothing, just the two of you. And it's shocking how long for many couples that's been because life is busy and we make all these excuses. But I say to couples, you know, if you can't afford 10 minutes in a week, that's saying something about your relationship. You know, we can all find 10 minutes to do our Facebook account. So if we can find 10 minutes to do Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram, we should jolly well be able to find 10 minutes to divide, you know, to really dedicate undivided attention to each other. And I think it's so easy to start this, you know, we can all start tonight, you know, when our when our partner comes home from work or when we, you know, we see them at the end of the day, just, you know, put down your phone and look at them and just say, you know, how was your day? And then listen, don't pick up anything else. Don't get distracted. Don't interrupt. Just listen for two or three minutes and you will find an enormous change in your relationship from two or three minutes at the end of the day. You know, we can all do this. Yeah. And, and I like the low expectations here with just two to three minutes because we're all busy. We don't want to make our life easier, uh, harder for ourselves by by being tough on ourselves and actually just making it a very small amount of time and starting low is quite important. I want to pick up on something completely different. So have you found a correlation between career progression and a particular way of approaching a relationship? It's a really good question. And I think the question is define career progression. Now, I think we tend to be obsessed a little bit in our culture with thinking the more senior you get, the better, which I would argue against. So I spoke to numerous CEOs as part of my research who were utterly miserable. And I would say, you know, there's no point in career progression unless it's meaningful and you really want to do it. 
Now, I've definitely found a correlation between people feeling they subjectively they have successful careers, they feel their careers are meaningful, they feel they're in the right place, and their relationship. But that correlation does not hold for what I think of as objective success. Does that make sense, that distinction? And so what I find is there are a couple of good predictors of whether I have that sense of, you know, this is where I want to be in my career. I'm happy with the direction. I feel fulfilled. Um, you know, of course, we all face bumps in the road in our careers. I'm not, I'm not trying to paint a perfect life. The first I want to talk about is support. So when we think about supporting our partners, there's two really important precursors for that. One is we're very clear what exactly it is we're supporting. Now, I say this because time and time again, I found in my research, the couples who were struggling, it wasn't because they didn't support each other. It was because they didn't quite understand what it was they were supporting. So they weren't clear about what their partner's goals were, what their partner's dreams were, and what their role was in that. And this was often a very sad situation because people genuinely have the best intentions. They were really trying to be supportive, but they were sort of pushing in the wrong direction. So the first thing is the partners really understood their role in each other's careers. Like, how can I help you and where are you trying to go? And the second thing is, is the kind of support they offered was not just the tea and sympathy support we tend to think of in relationships. So, you know, I plump up your self-esteem. I make you feel good about yourself. This is lovely support, but it's not the support that this is the game-changing support. The game-changing support in couples vis-a-vis careers was this support, which I talk about in the book as being a secure base which means there is that kind of cozy support. But the idea is, is that I also give you a bit of a loving kick rather than a loving cuddle. So it's slightly pushy. So let's imagine you come home after a a day in the office and you're like, oh, you know, I'm not a great day. I'm not sure, you know, maybe, you know, maybe I should look at a different role. Maybe I should look at a different organization. It's not the kind of support that's like, oh, don't worry, everything will be fine. You know, let me make you a cup of tea. It's the kind of support that's like, okay, you know, explain those feelings. What are those feelings about? Right, well, let's get out there. How can I support you to explore different options, to get out there, to take some risks? So it's a little bit more of a pushy support than a close support. Now, sometimes that kind of support can't, doesn't feel particularly comfortable. But what I found over the long term was a very strong connection between couples who developed the ability to give each other that slightly more pushy support based on a deep knowledge of what their partner wanted to, you know, their partner's ambition and, and their, what they wanted out of their careers versus partners who were just giving them that kind of nice, empathetic support, but without really understanding their role in their careers. So that's one thing that has a very, very strong connection between how we feel about our careers and our couple. I really like this finding because I think sometimes we can think of our relationship as just something that can take away from our career. 
But actually, I found the opposite. If people have a good relationship, it can be a real kind of secret weapon in our career success. Because if we think of most of our jobs, our partner is likely to outlast or any boss we have, all of our peers, any mentors, any relationship we have with an organization. And so they have a unique insight into our world. They're also, if they also work, they can be a great sounding board, advice. Sometimes they can genuinely help us practically in our careers. And so I think we also need to shift to thinking that our partners can be a real asset. And particularly when we shift this support, our partners can be a real asset for our careers. Mm, I absolutely love that. One other thing that resonated a lot with me from your book was this idea that there are different types of couple arrangements you can have in terms of your career, the dual career couples and so on. Can you tell me a bit more about that? So... One of the big questions um, couples need to face early on, and I think particularly at the point when they start to have children and they start to build a family, is how do we prioritize our careers vis-a-vis each other? And what, what do I mean by this? I mean, who's the geographical leader if we were to move, move geographies, move country, move, move location? If there is, you know, if both of us need to travel for work, who's more likely to be able to do that? So who spends a bit more time and energy and places more importance on their career and who places a little bit less importance on their career and maybe takes up a bit more of the slack at home? Now, there are three models of doing this. Of course, the traditional model is what we think of as primary secondary. You know, one person is in that primary position where they consistently place more emphasis on their career. And the other person is in the secondary position where they still have an important career, but they're just going at a slightly slower pace and they take up more of the slack at home. And of course, traditionally, it would have been in heterosexual couples, it would have been the man in the primary position and the woman in the secondary position. That's no longer the case. You know, sometimes it's the woman in the primary position, the man in the secondary position. And obviously with, um, with same-sex couples, you know, that gender dynamic doesn't come into the picture. But now there are two more models that couples are taking. One is what I call turn-taking, which means that at any one time, you may be primary and I may be secondary, but a Time on time, we switch those roles. And this is particularly interesting around that time we're having children. So it may be that for a period I take, and certainly I did this, would t- I took three, three years or so where I was still continuing my career. I was still working, but I actually went down to four days a week. So I was working part-time and taking up a bit more of the slack at home. And Jean-Pierre, my husband, was, you know, his career at that point in time was in that primary position, he was dedicating more time. And then later on, when the children got a little bit older and I went back to full time, we switched positions a little bit. Now we more evened out, you know, but he, he, you know, I stepped up and he stepped back a bit. So that's this idea of turn taking, where there's periods we push forward on our career and periods we spend a bit more time investing at home. Yeah. On that note, I interviewed Nick Wilkie, who is the chief exec of the NCT or was until recently. Um, for this podcast and he and his wife do a very pronounced form of this turn taking in that they literally swap CEO roles so he's just stepped back to be a stay-at-home dad again and his wife is taking on a CEO role and they've already done that 
price, which is very interesting. Yeah. So this is a model. And then there's a third model, which is really interesting as well, which is what I call double primary, which is where couples agree some boundaries. So let's say, you know, we're never going to leave Birmingham, right? So we're, we're always be based in the, in the Midlands in Birmingham, but within that constraint, we'll both have full careers. And, um, as you can imagine, this is, this is the model I have now with my husband. It can be exhausting <laughs> um, because there's a lot juggling. But at the same time, what that enables is both partners to sort of push ahead at the same time. And initially, when I looked at these three models, I was really interested in, you know, is one better than the other? And when I did my first pass through my analysis, it looked as if that third model, that double primary, was the most successful. And I was really curious about that because I knew in my own skin, you know, I was very happy, but it was also very, could be very stressful. And what I found was the reason that on average it works better, although the other two models can also work very, very well, was that it forced couples to have those conversations we were talking about before. Because it was so hectic, it forced you into those conversations around, okay, how really are we going to make this work? What do we really want out of life and how are we going to get it? And so it wasn't the model per se that made the difference. It was really back to those conversations. And I loved this finding because I think as working couples, so often we're given these dictates, right? You have to have a 50-50 marriage or this is the thing you need to do to make it work. And what I found was actually all of these things can work. It's all about how you get to that decision and how you negotiate it and how you keep that negotiation ongoing. Interesting. So there isn't a, one way that is the best way, but it's about having the deep conversations. No, yeah, yes, definitely. I'm interested in the practical stuff. So you say your research found that we waste too much time worrying about the practical stuff yeah so what what is your advice when you are literally sinking deep into the mud of practical challenges i think there's a time and a place to talk about the practicalities we all need to figure those out but let me put it this way if you're arguing about childcare pickup i can guarantee that's not really what you're arguing about what you're arguing about is who has priority, who has power in the couple, who gets to choose. These are the issues. And so what I always say to couples is, of course, we need to tackle those practicalities. You know, we all have the washing to do and the kids to pick up. This needs to be sorted. But these discussions have to happen after we've negotiated the fundamentals. Whose career is taking priority? Uh, what kind of model are we? How are we going to support each other? What are we supporting? And when we have that foundation, then those practical conversations become a lot easier because there's a logic to them, right? If we've got the principles, then we can tackle the practicalities. And the mistake I see couples make is that they ignore the principles and just go straight to the practicalities. And then, of course, it's very hard to make them work because the foundation hasn't been set in place. Now, let's assume for a minute you have set that foundation. How then do you get to the practicalities? I think I have a lot of advice here, here for couples. One is what I find works best is a divide and conquer model. 
i.e. instead of saying, you know, this week I take the rubbish out, next week it's your turn, one of you always does that task. Okay, now obviously there are some tasks this doesn't work for. You wouldn't want to say one of you always does all of the childcare, but still childcare involves different tasks. And oftentimes what can be burdensome is not doing them, but it's about being the one who keeps everything in mind, or as one of my colleagues says, being the central computer system for the family. And so it can be really helpful with your partner to divide up those childcare responsibilities. So let me give you a personal example. You know, anything medical, dentist. So at the moment, my kids are at that age where we're, they're having the teeth braces. So, you know, dentists, vaccination schedules, doctor's appointments, checkups. That My husband does it all. And, you know, the great thing about that is I don't think about it. I don't know the name of the dentist, right? I don't know when the appointments are. That is his domain. And, but anything to do with friends, parties, sleepovers, you know, I, I know the n- names and numbers of all the parents. That's my domain. My husband, he doesn't even need to think about it. And it's really, really helpful, I found, when couples, and we did this actually off the back of the research, because what I found time and time again is it's not necessarily doing the things that is stressful. It's keeping it all in mind, right? It's keeping that to-do list running over in our mind. And it seems to work really well for couples when they very much almost do a, a list of everything they need to do and split it and say, you know, this, these are my domain and that's your domain. And we're just not going to cross worry across. And that seems to work very well for couples. Mm, that's very true. And your point about having a conversation about it explicitly is really important. I spoke to Elizabeth Enemans for episode three of this podcast and she's done research into life admin and she found a similar thing that the person who starts taking responsibility for an area, for example, medical stuff, is very often the person where this task just hangs on to. And so making a conscious decision rather than just letting tasks get stuck to you that you're then loaded with it is extremely important. You know, I challenge you, I challenge you to do this exercise in your listeners. Take a pen and paper and list all of those admin tasks, everything you can think of from what, from tasks you do every day, like the washing up to tasks like watering the plants or putting the trash out, which is, you know, just once every week. First of all, you'll be surprised and depressed how long that list is <laughs> and then get your partner to read it. Because I bet you there are things that your partner does that you've not written down. And it's because when when one person does them all the time, we sort of forget about them, right? We don't see them. So it can be a really good exercise in appreciation, right? That you both write your list and then you're like, yeah, I never thought that you did this actually. I just don't think about that. And in effect, that's what we're aiming for. But we're aiming for some equity in division of those lists. Now, I also think equity does not mean exactly 50-50. And I think we've got to get away from this idea that 50-50 should be the aim for all couples. I think that's right for some couples, but that's not right for every couple. And I think the problem with this idea of 50-50 is we can sometimes hold it up as an ideal and then use it to beat ourselves over the head with like, oh, we're not quite at 50-50 and our relationship's going to fall apart. You know, no, there are times in our lives when 50-50 is not the right thing for us. 
And there are times when we need to skew one way and times we need to skew the other. So I think we need a little bit more of flexible approach to the idea of equity as opposed to thinking we've got to divide it exactly down the middle all the time. Otherwise, there's something wrong with our couple. In principle, I fundamentally agree with you. But in practice, I continue to be surprised how many people say when they're expecting a baby, oh, yes, we're going to split it 50-50 and we're both going to value our careers. And then they have the baby and then they have a conversation and the majority come out with saying, well, for our couple, it made sense that if they're heterosexual, that the man um, man's career was a priority. So how do you square that? This often comes down to money. I think we need to be very careful with money because it's a tricky decision-making criteria because what looks like it makes sense in the short term very rarely makes sense in the long term. So let me sort of break this down because I think it's really important for your listeners to think through this. And especially because if we look at the marriage stats, on average, when we look at um, heterosexual couples, women tend to all marry men who are older than them. And so at the time we have careers, it's very likely the man will be earning more because when we're in our late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, pay is very tied to age, you know, when we've not been in our careers very long. The problem with these making these decisions based on money, you know, I earn a few thousand more than you, therefore, you know, you're going to take up the slack at home and I'm going to push forward on my career is that may look rational today, but it doesn't take into account our trajectories. And especially these days when our career paths are very uncertain, it's likely that all of us at one point in our careers will be laid off at some point. It's likely that all of us at one point in our careers will want to make a big career transition. The, The idea of basing a decision on the salary you earn today predicting that forward is very, very foolhardy. And so I think that's one, that's one thing that happens. I think another thing that happens is people underestimate how very difficult it is to get back into the labor force after a career break. And I'm not talking about a normal maternity leave. I'm saying, you know, someone who decides, okay, I'm going to take three or four years off when my children are very young. The statistics show that that is, assuming you want to continue your career afterwards, that that is a very, very bad choice. It's extremely difficult for women, and it's actually even harder for men who take a career break for children to get back onto the career ladder in a similar position with a similar pay level. It's much more sensible. Again, for some people, they really want to take time out to be, to be um, full-time parents, that's great for them. But if you're someone who wants to carry on your career, it's not worth taking that career break. It's much better, even if you go part-time for, for a while and can keep going through that rough period, it's much better than taking a career break. Because if you take a career break, it's almost impossible to get back on the track. Out of all the research that you did for this book, what was most surprising to you? Yeah, that's such a great question. I think what was, what was most surprising is that it is possible to have two very big careers 
simultaneously and do well. I mean, be happy in your family life, you know, have a good relationship, have a good family life and obviously do well in your career. And I kept coming across couples like this. And, you know, when I came across the first year, I was like, oh, yeah, I tried to find some excuse. Why not? And then I started to take this pattern seriously and think, how is that really possible? Because it kind of goes against, you know, many of our experience and also sort of what we think about how this works. And the reason it's possible or the way it's possible is that these couples are absolutely ruthless about this process of discussing what do we really want? How are we going to support each other? And if a decision or an opportunity does not align with that, they say no. And I think this is where many, many of us fall down, is that we try to do too much. You know, we try to do everything. And I'm not going to use the phrase do it all because that has this sort of negative connotation. But I found that when couples were really struggling with this question of, you know, can we have it all? Um, I want to have it all. They were really wrestling with the question of what do we really want? And actually, for most couples, we don't want everything that's included in that bucket of having it all, right? You know, when we read the magazine articles, the having it all is, you know, the wonderful children and the amazing house and the dog and the pony and the, you know, the, we're on the school board and we also have this amazing career and we're also fantastic chefs and we do sports all the time. I mean, when most people look at all those things, it looks like a perfect life. But for most people, actually, those things are not all equally important to them. And couples can have, you know, these core aspects, big careers, happy relationships, good family life, if they really ruthlessly prioritize. Now, they don't have it all, but it is possible to have these three elements together. And I found that very positive. Definitely. That is very encouraging indeed. From a personal perspective, do you do anything different now with your partner having done this research? Yes. <laughs> so one of the things I, I really learned from talking to the older couples, now some of these had been together, you know, decades and others were maybe on second relationships and had, you know, had learned something from the first one. So it wasn't necessarily that they'd been together a long time, but they were you know, coming towards the end of their careers And one of the things I really learned from them was one of the things that mattered hugely in the long term was that couples had some kind of shared passion, which was not about the children and was not about their careers. And this ranged from, you know, a couple who sang operas together to other couples who did volunteering together to couples who painted together. They had this shared passion. And I think, you know, when I started this research, Jean-Pierre and I were in that, you know, in the trenches with two small children, two very small children and trying to grow our careers and in that phase of trying to establish ourselves. And I think we realized that we'd we lost a bit of us along the way. You know, we didn't have anything that was not about work and not about the kids. And, you know, we've worked hard over the last few years to carve out, and it's not so much about the amount of time, but carve out more time for ourselves to foster these passions that will outlive 
you know, the kids being at home and outlive, you know, career decisions and periods of our career. And I, and I feel that's bringing us a lot closer together. And I think it's because, you know, it, it makes something that's ours, right? That's about the couple, that's an identity, if you like, that's not about those other aspects of life that are our responsibilities. You speak about kindness in your book. Yeah. What would you suggest we should do to put ourselves into a state of kindness when we are exhausted from the general, yeah. <laughs> the general challenges of uh, young, very young children and ambitious careers? First of all, there's two types of kindness. There's being kind to someone. So we might think of this in terms of, you know, buying a little gift, a thoughtful gift or a thoughtful gesture, or, you know, letting someone sleep in when we know they've had a hard day's work. This tends to be a little easier for us. You know, we can prompt ourselves and say, you know, I'm going to make a little sacrifice or, you know, we're popping around the supermarket and we see their favorite dessert or something. This can come a little easier. It's still very important. But I think just to think of once a week or a couple of times a week of doing a little gesture, it doesn't need to be a huge bunch of flowers or something, but just just a little thing, right? Preparing the favorite meal or, you know, you see a nice t-shirt in a shop to buy, something like this makes a big difference. The thing which is harder, especially at the phase where we have young children and life is busy, is thinking kindly of our partner. So imagine this, you've, you know, you've had a long day looking after the kid and you, you the kids, and you've called your partner and said, can you, can you get takeout on the way home? I'm just so exhausted. I've not had time to prepare anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine, fine, fine. Great, you think. And your partner arrives and they've forgotten the takeout. What do you think about your partner at that time? It is so easy for us to think, oh my goodness, I have been busting my gut all day and you lazy person cannot even pick up a takeaway on the way home. It's much harder to think kindly and think, you know, my goodness, if they didn't remember the takeout, even though we've had this conversation and they know I've had a hard day, they must have had a really hard day, right? They must have a lot on their mind. And that is the piece of kindness. The kindness which comes from assuming our partner has the best of intentions and is fundamentally a good human being this is the thing that tends to get lost in that busyness more quickly. And I think it's really important to remind ourselves of that basic assumption in our relationships. Like my basic assumption is that John Piero is a good person. He has my best interests of heart, at heart and he loves me. Now, does he occasionally do things that drive me crazy? Of course right? We are human beings. But I think it's about keep coming back to that fundamental assumption. And it's so easy. And this is where I think the bitterness comes into relationships. It comes in when we lose sight of that assumption. And that is often what happens in those small children and baby years. So keeping that in mind, if someone listening to this is very very ambitious in their careers um, has a loving partner but also wants to strengthen the positive impact of that relationship on their career and wants to have a happier uh, career and family life 
what would be the top three things they can do this week from your research? Okay, so number one, find some small pockets of time, again, not big pockets, 10, 15 minutes to give each other undivided attention. Number two, in those pockets of time, get away from the practical discussions and talk about those principles we've been talking about. You know, what do we really want? How's your career going? How are you thinking about the future? How can I better support you? You know, just spending 10, 15 minutes in the next week at that kind of level is going to help enormously. And then I would say the third thing is kindness. Just think this week, what are one or two little gestures of kindness I can give to my partner? And how can I keep in mind this assumption that my partner is a good person with good intentions who occasionally, just like us, makes mistakes? And that's not about who they are. That's probably about the stress they're under and the business of our lives at the moment. And just be a little bit easier on each other. Hmm. That's very good advice. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I really enjoyed speaking to you after having read your wonderful book. Uh, thank you for the conversation and let's keep in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation I had with Jennifer. You can get in touch with her via jennifer.petrilieri at inside.edu. Petrilieri is spelled P-E-T-R-I-G-L-I-E-R-I and INSEED is spelled I-N-S-E-A-D. And of course, her book is available from all major booksellers. Next week, I will be taking a break from the podcast because I'm going to be super busy with interviewing the new fellows for the 2020 cohort. Uh, But we will be back towards the end of February. Having now done almost two series, I want to take stock and take some time to think about what content is most high impact for you and in what format it's most valuable. And also think about uh, if at all I should be continuing the podcast and whether it does actually make a difference to you. So please do let me know your suggestions and thoughts about how to make this as awesome for you as possible. I'd love to know whether you're enjoying the podcast, what type of content was most useful to you, and also, very importantly, any constructive feedback and suggestions for me. I'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me on verena at leadersplus.org.uk. That's V-E-R-E-N-A at leadersplus.org.uk. Or you can send us a message via Twitter or Instagram on at leaders underscore plus. Of course, if you did like the podcast and want to support it, the best way to do so is to take a moment to share it right now with five friends, either by sending them a quick text, perhaps with a screenshot from the podcast and also by sharing it on social media. Thank you so much for your support and I look forward to talking to you on the next episode.